a loved one that is suffering with drug or alcohol addiction. Today we will have a conversation on how to help them. Welcome to Boom Goddess Radio. I'm Jennifer Davis Page, your host. My guest today is Dr. Margaret Higgins, and she's the executive director of The Haven in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, Dr. Higgins, welcome to Boom Goddess Radio. I'm delighted to be here, so thank you very, very much, Jennifer, for inviting me. I'm hoping that in the discussion today, we can actually provide information that will help many women, and possibly more than women, in the nation. I'm sure. I'm sure we will. I mean, you're, you're the expert, so I'm sure we will. Please tell our listeners about the Haven and their services for women recovering from alcohol and drug dependency. Well, I'm, I'm pleased to use that word dependency for a start off. That's great. Addiction is a, is a word laden with pejorative notions. And so uh, I like to try and use other words. However, the Haven here in Tucson, we've been around for about 50 years. Uh, that's five zero, not one five. And we were started by uh, women in Tucson who suffered from alcoholism. They decided and recognized wonderful women. I praise them to the hilt. Um, they recognized the need for special services for women alone, gender-specific services uh, that the women could bring their children into the services as well. Uh, it reduces stress for the women. It helps recovery. So we've been around providing residential services for about 50 years to women, as I said. Um, we've now expanded our services to intensive outpatient and outpatient as well, again, just for women. And we're recognizing that housing is a very, very important part of recovery, as we can discuss later. And so we've also started offering housing. Our audience ranges across the entire demographics, but although we can serve everybody from the, the, the different demographics, uh, we tend to focus on women who have very few resources, financially speaking. I see. Tell me, why? how old do you have to be to be a part of this program? Can you be, first of all, you accept children, which is wonderful, but you don't have to have a child to... Oh, absolutely okay, not. Okay. Yeah. And do you, mm. how old do you have to be to be eligible for the program? 18. We're right. 18 and above. We've had women from 18 uh, up through and to, I think, into the 80s, actually. Um, and yes, you don't have to have children. When I started at the Haven 15 years ago, I recognized that we promote, that we serve women with children. And I've been very specific on saying women, comma, and women with children. Okay. So you don't have to have children. But we have had women who are age, let's say, 22 or 23, and they've got five children. 
No, it's serious. It's it's a serious problem we have in the nation. And you make accommodations for for the entire family at your facility? Uh, generally, no. We try to limit one or two children, but equally so. I mean, the, the, you as a woman could come to us, be pregnant, have the baby the next day, and it becomes a haven baby. So clearly that baby's going to stay with us. And uh, we, we limit the upper age of children, particularly boy children, okay. to something around about 12 or 13. And then we do have, so children can live with us, you know, two-ish children can live with us, and then the other children are welcome to visit and stay overnight at the weekends. Now, if you have a, a patient, is that a good word to use, patient? I, I use client. Some people use patients, but we use client. All right, if you have a client that comes to you and she's pregnant, but during the pregnancy, she's been on some drug, mm -hmm. and the baby now is addicted to some some form of drug. Uh -huh. What happens then? Do you do you take care of that child there, or is that child then sent someplace else to get um, a service from for babies? It would depend on the severity, but generally also DCS would be involved. Okay. And they will make these decisions. Their case manager will make the decisions. Um, yes. Uh, you know, although I know that that's a reality, mm -hmm. it's not all that common. But yes, when it does happen, we work with the um, provider. That's the person that pays for the woman. It could be the insurance plan. They will have a case manager, and we'll work with the Department of Child Safety and anybody, the hospitals, if the child was born in hospital and they recognize that there were um, addictions in the, in the baby, then they'd probably stay there. We will, we will draw a tight net, a web of support for the woman using every support service we can to ensure that the best, the, the best is for the baby and the mother, of course. So do you have two services? Do you have outpatient as well as your residences? We have residential, mm -hmm. and then after the woman has um, moved from residential, let's say she's got to a medically more stable position but still needs services, then we will um, uh, offer the woman intensive outpatient services okay. and offer housing at the same time. And then again, when medically um, justified, the client can move to outpatient services, but live in her own housing. So it's like a step-down process, I think you could call it. But they've got to come and commit to you initially Absolutely. to the full uh, residential program, is that correct? Yes, the full residential program, I'll put that in quotes, full, in that um, the woman is, uh, she either self-refers or she's sent to us by other agencies or doctors in town, but they will come to us. And yes, they make a commitment to the residential portion for as long as uh, we can justify the, the need for them to be with us medically. And I have to be uh, very open here in that our counsellors and our nurse and our nurse practitioners might recognise that... that um, woman X needs so many uh, days with us and then we will have to fight or argue or persuade insurance that this is medically justified. So then the client stays with us for as long as her case manager or the plan will allow and then again medically justified we can uh, move the client to the intensive outpatient. It's always client choice and client driven though. 
Do you often win that fight? Yes. <laughs> More than we do. Well, the clients recognize the value of the services and they see and meet women who have been successful and they want to improve their lives. That's why they're with us. So if they can see that their lives will be improved and their lives of their families and children, they are going to commit to it. Typically, how long is the program typically uh, no typical anymore okay before my time uh, women would come to us and stay for about a year okay. and then gradually it, as, as philosophies have emerged uh, by paying entities and by insurances um, the times have changed so from one year it was down to nine months it went down to six months when I started at the haven a client would commit residentially for three months but now we have to, which, which is wise, tailor the programs individually. Because let's say, Jennifer, you're there. Okay. And let's say medically we decide you um, are perhaps more, um, you, you can learn quicker than I. Maybe you only need three weeks before okay. moving to intensive outpatient. I'm a little bit slower on the uptake. We might need four or five weeks for me to become medically stable to move in to intensive outpatient. So there is a difference here. It's individually tailored. And I can tell you the averages that women stay with us, but that's a, a practical reality as opposed to, um, um, how can I say it? Um, we can't define that in advance to say that you will be with us for 30 days anymore. It's see. all individual, and we monitor it weekly, daily, and we report on the uh, progress made by each client uh, constantly until we make the decision that the client moves to the different level of service. Okay, so now you have a client that comes to you, and um, you service women that are disadvantaged. Yes. Tell me, mm -hmm. where, where does she... What does she come to you with if she has absolutely nothing? And she says to you, I don't have any insurance. And do you put them through a qualifying to see whether, I'm using the word Medicaid, but do you pre-qualify them to see where they fit in terms of being eligible for any insurance? That's a good question, actually, because we do work with women primarily who have nothing, as you've just articulated. Women will come to us with the clothes on their back. Many of the women that we serve are coming directly from jail. Um, a, a give or take, a third of our population may be the jail. We've had women walk to us from the jail virtually shoeless. We have clothes for the women. We have um, everything they can possibly need. We have sanitary services. We provide all of this. But the big issue, of course, is who is going to pay for the woman to be with us in services. And so, yes, we will work with them to find an appropriate insurance plan that will cover the cost of the services. And then we will um, assign, so to speak, uh, the client to a particular insurance plan. And we will work with the insurance plan so that they concur that, that you or that another woman will be covered by them. Do you, yes. do you find that, that you get turned down by insurances depending on the client? I mean, are you ever just turned down and they say, we're not going to do it and you have got to knock on some other doors for, for help? Not that I'm aware of. Okay. Now, you can see the puzzle on my forehead. Um, staff have not talked to me about that. So in general, it is not a problem. A woman, woman coming to us with nothing will be found somebody to pay for her. 
Yeah, I I think if if it was somebody coming from outside of um, the state, maybe that yes. was my next question. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, but we will work with with the client in the best way we possibly can. So the Haven has uh, you have to, in order to be at the Haven, you have to be an Arizona citizen. You have to be living in Arizona. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now. How long is there a waiting list? I I heard you just say that women have walked to you. Yes, they have. So there, I'm asking the question: Is there a waiting list? But apparently, there isn't one. Not at the moment, there isn't. We have to manage this very finely. Uh, but no, uh, a, a woman can come. Generally, we are not a hundred percent full, and we do that for two reasons. And it's a bit hard to express clearly, but we are licensed for a certain number of beds. If a woman comes to us with children, the children have to live in a licensed bed, okay. which reduces our income ability. But what it does mean is that of our 100% of beds, we will make sure we've got, I'm going to say, 75% or 80% dedicated to women. And the other 20% can be adjusted according to if we're having children coming in or if a client calls us and needs services, then that woman could go into a bed that might otherwise be used for children. I see. So it's a constant balancing act. This is just a, an amazing facility. We're going to take a brief break, and we'll be back in just a moment. to Boom Goddess Radio and this wonderful conversation we're having about drug and alcohol dependency with our our expert here, Dr. Margaret Higgins. Um, Dr. Higgins, I'd like to ask you about why women? Why just women? Mm-hmm. It's a question we often get, and it's a question that's quite easy to answer. It really is. Uh, but there are going to be some sort of basic facts which, um, which might surprise us. Okay, so why women only? Well, just a, just a background to note that the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Addiction, that's their word, 3.1 million women have substance use disorder. That's a, that's a more appropriate term, substance use disorder, uh, for regular use of illicit drugs. And don't forget here that we must also consider prescription drugs, 3.5 million more. So we've got a hefty population of women in the nation that do need some kind of substance use disorder treatment. Very few actually get the services. So why women only? Why are we talking about that? Well, historically, how can I say this? Um, Women in poorer circumstances and other circumstances, I don't want to to sort of um, target anybody here, they may have been abused by a male person. Could be a father, could be an uncle, could be a brother, could be a boyfriend. And they may have been trafficked for sex in exchange for drugs. So imagine sitting in a group of people as you're trying to recover and the group has men and women and you want to talk about how your early life, for example, has affected your drug use 
and you feel the need to say that in part it's because my boyfriend made me sleep with this man so that some drugs could be exchanged. It must be very hard to speak openly and honestly about such life experiences in front of the male, the perpetrator, not the specific person, but the representative. Uh, to some extent, we liken this to um, traumas experienced by indigenous peoples who are faced with talking about their trauma in front of the um, the population that perhaps did the um, the demeaning of the, the indigenous populations. So we've likened it to that. So women need to have gender-specific. Similarly, just to redress and be balanced, men may have been raised to believe that they've got to be the provider, the unemotional one, the strong one. And any man not fitting that stereotype might have felt that they needed to... Um, to resort to alcohol or drugs to try and soften their mental state. So, similarly, man sitting in front of a group that's got women in as well might not feel comfortable expressing their um, the, the different sensitivities in front of women. So gender-specific treatments are necessary for both. So that being said, though, yeah. are your professionals, your psychologists, your psychiatrists, and all the doctors that work with these women, are they also women? With us, we have had some men, primarily women, absolutely. But here's a reason to have the occasional man. Okay. So we have a male, um, at the moment, we have a male counsellor, um, an intensive outpatient. We did have a male counsellor in residential. We have a man who writes grant and grants and does music therapy. And we have a man who is the maintenance manager. And we have a man who's the HR facility director. So why... It's because, in great part, women need to know that there are good men out there. Yes, absolutely. Yes. But equally so, as a woman, if you feel uncomfortable having a male counsellor, then we will respect that and you will not have a male counsellor. Okay. Now, do women come in, and you know their stories, so they will come in and you will absolutely know if they are, they've been abused by a man in any way. I mean, once you come in and the intake person hears their story, you will absolutely know what they're they're facing. Absolutely, and um, th there's a, a fairly lengthy screening process called the intake and assessment, which could be two or three hours. So we have trained and qualified staff, master's level staff, who will be talking through these issues with the clients to find out more about the background and then to be able to appropriately decide the, the best counsellor perhaps or when to come in or what the needs are and what the mental state is. You know, when you talked about prescription drugs, you know, people, we know how that's running rampant across America or around the world in terms of these these uh, opioids. Oh, yes. And I guess my question is, is there, is there a big difference in how they're, the women are, are treated with if they're on opioids versus heroin? 
Are they in the same room? Do they talk to each other? I mean, tell me about that. Okay, in as far as I can, because I'm not a counsellor, and I'll make that very clear. But my understanding is, yes, we do not sort of stratify, for want of a better term, between illegal drugs and legal drugs, okay. just also to divide it more simply. Because the issue is dependency, substance use disorder. Whether you're disordered to drug A or drug B is perhaps not the issue. But how to overcome the disorder is the issue. But now there will be differences, and you've just touched upon them. So let us say you are um, a woman, uh, and, and this isn't necessarily legal versus illegal drugs, mm -hmm. but it is the type of um, understandings that a woman needs to come to. A woman from who is, let's say, a worker, um, middle class, upper class, has um, a partner, might need to go to the occasional cocktail party on a Friday afternoon after right. work. Right. How do you deal with that and saying no or being able to recognize the triggers and deal with them as opposed to, let's say, a woman who, has, who does not go to cocktail parties on Fridays and has to deal with um, avoiding or saying no to um, a pusher in the street? You know, we have different circumstances that we have to deal with, but ultimately we have to know how to deal with them. So we do have uh, differences that will be brought to the table in group discussions. And we have counsellors who are master's level qualified, and they will be able to speak in the one-on-ones to these different issues that women face in their lives. How many... Um, women are in, and I'm assuming, I don't know, yeah. sitting in a room together. Are, okay. All right. Is there such, is that how you you have your your classes or your informational sessions? Are there women sitting in a room in a circle, for example, with, with a psychologist or psychiatrist? I don't know. Help me with this. Oh, absolutely. It is. Yes, we have what we call one-on-one -on -one sessions. And do stop me if I start to go into uh, jargon too much, <laughs> professional <laughs> jargon. But there are one-on-ones where I, if I'm the client, will meet one-on-one, -on -one in, just personally, with my counsellor, with the nurse, with the nurse practitioner. Now, there are also group sessions uh, where there will be a group of us up to about 12. That's the ideal group size. And we'll be talking about, and here's another aspect of why women only services. So if we've got women in a group, they're sharing common experiences. You know, wife or mother is going to have different experiences to a husband or a father. Uh, women deal with prejudices. There's more of a prejudice about a woman taking alcohol or drugs than there is about a man. So what are the triggers? Why is it? What do I need to know um, as a woman to help me in my life, in a life without, without drugs and alcohol? So this is, these are things that we need to do for women only. Are women yeah. more prone to addiction than men? <laughs> I'm glad you brought me around to that because... Yes, yes. Now, why would that be? Well, th there is a faster progress progression of substance use. So let me rephrase that clearly. A faster progression of substance use disorder in women than in men. And we have more mental health issues in part because there's a greater stigma we're dealing with. Uh, there are more barriers to getting the help that women that we women need for recovery. There's more of a stigma, as I mentioned a moment ago. But here's some basics. So we as women, we have a larger percentage of body fat. 
Okay. We're lighter weight. We have a larger percentage of our lighter weight uh, that is fat. And the drugs tend to be stored in the fat cells. So we've got more fat in our bodies. We take this, the drugs. We're likely to um, decline into substance disorder uh, more than men who have a lower um, a body fat percentage. Also, the reproductive organs contain quite a bit of body fat. So in short, the alcohol and the, and the drugs tend to stay in the bodies of women longer and have a longer effect on women. Our bodies take longer to metabolize and remove these substances. So that, that plays into the different needs of women and the different factors that affect our slide, if we want to call it that, into okay. substance use disorder. Now, dropouts. Do you ever have, and I'm sure you must, women that have joined the program and then just decided it's either too difficult for them or they just don't want to do it anymore. And if they should drop out, do you allow them a second chance if a month down the road they come back to you and say, I, I shouldn't have left, do you give them a second chance? Absolutely. The answer to both of those questions are yes and yes. Yes. It's a bit of a hard reality, I think, when a woman who has... Um, in the throes of substance use disorder. And come back to me on that, by the way, because there's a genetic component I must talk about. Okay. But yes, so a woman who um, who is, is with us and decides that it's too hard or for whatever reason feels the need to leave, she might feel the pull of the family too much, so she might leave. Yes, absolutely, if she wants to come back, then we will have to reassess her, and depending on beds, but yes, we do give women second chances and more. And I can absolutely assure you that we've had women whom I recognize come back through. Now, we've, we've also had women who I recognize come back many years later, and they've been successful, they have taken up studies, they've graduated as counselors and want to come back and work for us. That's amazing. That was another question, whether or not they give back to you once you've helped them. You want to talk a little bit about about that? That's interesting. Do you think giving back is not perhaps the word I would suggest, although okay. that obviously is in it. Okay. I tend to think of giving back more in terms of volunteering. We do have women who volunteer, mm -hmm. and but my specific reference a moment ago was to women who have had a successful recovery and qualified and want to give back by being an employee. I see. And I it see. works wonderfully with the client because then the clients are talking with women who they can see have... It, it's possible, right? Exactly. exactly. Yeah. It is possible for me to, to to come to 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 re to go into recovery and come back and to help other women down the line. Yes, it's like a cascade of support um, from what I can do to what I can do for other women and what they can do for other women yet again. So it's a wonderful, wonderful um, circle of life. Our radio show is is heard around the country. And are there any d that you are aware of, are there any other uh, facilities like the Haven in other cities that you kind of connect with, um, share stories with, uh, share experiences with? 
Absolutely, yes. I go to a fair few conferences because our field is changing with new medical knowledge, a new environment of payment services, for example. So we're connecting all the time. And I can absolutely assure our listeners that there are many gender-specific services throughout the nation. And how would they find them? We're, 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 our, our minutes are ticking down, and I, I could sit here and talk to you for another hour and about this. And I've got this, lots but, more to say. But uh, <laughs> tell me, how would a... Is there an 800 number? Is there a website that women can go to that are not living in this area? Well, no, I wouldn't say there is specifically because we're talking about different states throughout the nation. Uh, but women can call the Haven 520-623-4590 and we will be able to guide them in the right direction. We want to thank all of you for listening and having you continue to be fans of Boom Goddess Radio. We so appreciate you. We appreciate your letters. We appreciate your emails and continue to support Boom Goddess Radio. Have a great day. For more information, visit our website, boomgoddessradio.com and follow us on Facebook, Boom Goddess. We'd love to hear from you. Your interest powers our programs.